Thank you, Carol and Pat, and for all of you who have shared in uh, presentations this morning. Hoarders Anonymous, a sermon series that we're in right now, thinking about our sometimes conflicted relationship with possessions and how possessions can possess us uh, without us realizing it. And so uh, sort of just taking a, an intervention or a support group kind of attitude toward this convoluted relationship with things, Hoarders Anonymous. And in a moment, I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, if you want to open your Bibles there. Uh, and uh, we're going to explore uh, a passage together. But before that, I'd like to call us to prayer. I'd like to invite us to bow our heads, close our eyes, take a breath, be in God's presence, experience God, and just be. There might be something you need to lift up to God in terms of confession or intercession for someone else or a, a word of love and gratitude, or maybe you just need to be in God's presence. Take a few moments, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Mighty God, you declare in Scripture that we are safeguarded by your good powers, and we feel and experience that in all the ways that you provide and care for us. And yet it is a very dangerous world filled with seemingly randomness. We're thinking this morning about the many, many lives lost and suffering in the Philippines from the typhoon. We pray for those who are doing emergency work and rescue work. We pray, dear God, that you might help us to have eyes and hearts that are open to the world that is suffering around us. We pause to thank you for our veterans, for those in active uh, armed forces, for the liberties we enjoy, for those who have paid so much to secure it. Make us good stewards of our religious liberty and our personal liberties and guide us as a nation and as a world. We ask today, God, that you open our hearts, that you minister to the suffering that's even here in this place, in this room, for the grieving, for the struggling, for the marriages in conflict, for the family crises, for the financial stresses and for all of the uncertainties of life, for those dealing with illness and surgery. We pray your loving hands to be upon us and your generous provision. Pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord, that truly through your Holy Spirit we'll experience renewal and refreshment. We pray that as your Holy Spirit visits us, that you might equip us to be the people you've called us to be, living a witness this coming week. We give you our hearts, we give you our full understanding. In Christ I pray, amen. Luke, the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 13, and I'll read this aloud and invite you to follow along prayerfully. I'll invite you to stand if you're able to do so. 
In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of grief, greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night, Your life is being demanded of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. Abraham Lincoln once said that the true test of character is not adversity. He said the true test of character is not adversity, but prosperity. It's when we have enough, or we have more than enough, that the true character inside of us is put to the test. I find it interesting that Jesus nowhere in the Gospels does a one, two, three list of how to know when enough is enough and how much is too much. Jesus nowhere gives a simple list. Nowhere in the Bible do we find a simple list of ten steps to distinguish between our needs and our wants. Jesus doesn't come at it that way, and Scripture doesn't come at it that way. Instead, Jesus gives us a new perspective. Jesus gives us a fresh way of looking at things and a fresh way of looking at our things and a fresh way of looking at stuff, at at life. He gives us a new perspective. And most often, Jesus gives us that fresh perspective by telling stories. Stories that are simple, but deceptively profound. And so, he tells a story, but you know what prompted this whole exchange with him was an age-old story of conflict between families regarding an inheritance. Whoa, that sounds fresh, doesn't it? Families fussing. Over money? How many times have we heard that story played over and over again? Families fussing over inheritance and and who got what in the will? That's that's as fresh as today. I love the cartoon I saw years ago where the family was nervously gathered around the large conference table and the lawyer's reading the will and uh, the attorney says as he reads, uh, and I, John Jones, being of sound mind... Spent it all. Sometimes that might be the better thing to do. I love another cartoon I found one day. Family gathered around the table, uh, you know, nervously drumming their fingers, and the attorney reads, as he's reading through the will, he says, and, and to my nephew Andrew, who loves real estate, I leave my Monopoly game. I don't think that's what Andrew had in mind. Well, 
before Jesus tells this story, which was instigated by family dispute over inheritance, he gives two very solemn warnings. Two very solemn warnings, and they're, and they're ju- just this simple. The first warning is, greed comes at us from every direction, so be prepared. There's not just one kind of greed. Greed comes at us from several directions, so be prepared. The kind of greed that makes us put ourselves first, the kind of greed that doesn't think about others, the kind of greed that's always grasping to have more. It comes at us when we least expect it, so be prepared and be on your guard. And the second warning is related, but not the same thing. Jesus says in verse 15, we are more important, what we are is more important than what we have. Life is more than stuff. What we are is more important than what we have. Life is more than stuff. He basically lays out those two warnings for all of us in our relationship with things and learning to deal with with hoarding and and accumulating of stuff. And uh, then he tells the story about a farmer whose land produced wonderfully, so much so that the farmer had this embarrassment of riches, this embarrassment of prosperity. And Jesus is such a great storyteller, he artfully says in the story that the land produced the crops, that the soil produced the crops. He doesn't say the farmer produced the crops. He acknowledges that the farmer is blessed by the work of soil and sunshine and rain and photosynthesis. You see, there were several silent partners in this farm operation. Silent partners like soil and sunshine and rain and photosynthesis and all kinds of things, not the farmer's doing. But the farmer didn't see it that way. He kept using personal pronouns like I, Notice how many times in this story he says, I, I know what I will do. I will build bigger barns. I will do this. I will do that. But even more troublesome to me is the personal pronoun my, the possessive personal pronoun my. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, and then the most dangerous of all, I will say to my soul, really, my soul? You own all these barns and all these goods and all this grain, and you own your own soul? Really? You know, the word my is small but deceptive. We use it all the time. Uh, My seat in the movie theater. Oh, is it really your seat? Or is it just yours till you're done with it and then it's somebody else's? My grocery cart at the grocery store. Is it really yours? Do you really own it? Or is it just something you use until you're done with it and then it's someone else's? My car, my land, my money, my things, really? Are they really yours? Or do you just use them until you're done with them and then they go to somebody else? The word my, very deceptive, worth thinking about. There's a great existential question that's asked by the farmer. In verse 17, he says, uh, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Now, that's a good question. The question is good. The way he answered it is not so good. But it's a great question. It's a great existential question. What do I do with my stuff? 
I have more than I can use. What do I do with my stuff? And we get the feeling that he had some anxiety about it. But you know, there's a saying that's developed recently, which I really like. This, this question, what should I do with my stuff, is a first world question as opposed to a third world question, you know, the developing world. There are a lot of first world questions that we get all upset about and we get in such a dither about, but they're not really, they're not really eternal questions. They're just products of the first world, our comforts and our conveniences and our prosperity. First world questions like, what color should I paint the guest room? Questions like, um, do you think my investments are yielding the appropriate return? Now, there's nothing wrong with these questions, but I want you to put them in perspective that they're first world questions. Questions like, when will I ever have time to watch all the TV shows that I like? Nothing wrong with these questions. They're just first world questions, as opposed to third world questions, developing world questions like, Where will I find clean water so that my children won't die of dysentery? Where will we find enough food for today? Those are real questions in other parts of the world. Or maybe to sort of uh, contextualize that for Cole County and Jefferson City, a third world question, but right here in our own city limits, would be a question like, do I buy groceries this week or blood pressure medicine? See, Whenever we get to struggling with how much is enough or the difference between needs and wants, what we need to do is put that question in perspective and to think about other people in the world who make do on so much less. It's all relative when it comes to issues like needs needs and wants and the question of how much is enough. It's all relative. There's... There's no easy answer, but it, but, it, but it needs to be framed in that larger global perspective. Now, by the standards of Jesus' day, this farmer would be called a success. He would. He'd be called smart. I mean, he managed his land. He obviously could manage a staff of laborers. He obviously paid his taxes. He... He planned ahead. He watched the cycles of nature and rain and dry time. The man was smart. The man was successful. Even by 21st century standards, anybody who can farm today is pretty smart to make a living off the land. So even by our standards, this man was smart and successful. But I want you to notice in Jesus' story what God calls the man. God doesn't call the man smart. He doesn't call him successful. What does God call the man? What? Fool. You fool. Wow. That's kind of sharp. You fool. He's a fool, first of all, because he thinks only of himself. When he has too much, he doesn't think about other people. He doesn't think about their needs. I love this scripture, Proverbs 21, verse 7. In the message, the rich, the rich get buried alive by their loot because they refuse to use it to help others. The rich get buried alive in their loot. They simply suffocate from hoarding possessions when they don't share. 
keep it in circulation. He was a fool because he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't get a perspective. He couldn't get a, a sense of proportion. He said, I've got plenty of stuff laid up for years to come, but God says, this night your soul is required of you. You notice the contrast between years to come and this night. This night is all you have. You don't have all those years. He's a fool by God's standards. See, sin, his sin is not just the sin of greed. His sin is missing life's point. So sin isn't always active greed. Sin can be missing life's point, which is what he was guilty of. Someone has helped us out here by listing four proofs that the rich man is really poor. Four proofs that he was really living in spiritual and emotional poverty. Here are the four proofs that he was living in poverty. First of all, there was a lack of thanksgiving. There was at no point that he gave thanks to God. Secondly, there was a lack of helpfulness. We've already talked about that. He was interested in stowing instead of bestowing. He was stowing for himself rather than bestowing upon others. Third, uh, he was poor because of a lack of a worthy future. I mean, really, is the best you can do to think about building more of what you already have? Is that the most creative, Mr. Farmer? Is that the most imaginative thing you can do with all of your possessions? That's not a worthy future. And fourth, he's poor because he lacked perspective. He died leaving everything. He took nothing with him. He he missed all that sense of perspective about what was important. And we do that. So many times we do that. The famous playwright Arthur Miller was raised in um, the lap of wealth and luxury when he was a little boy in New York City in the East Coast. Uh, His family had a chauffeur. Uh, His family had a beach house on the ocean. Uh, His dad was a wealthy businessman until 1928, a year before the Great Crash. Arthur Miller's father lost everything. Arthur Miller was 13 years old. And he said, it was difficult to watch my father, who'd been powerful, become helpless. And then Arthur Miller said this, it made you want to search for ultimate values, for things that would not fall apart under pressure. It made you want to search for ultimate values, for things that do not fall apart under pressure. But we do this with things and with culture's definitions of success. We try to pad ourselves against aging against the, the tragedies of life. We try to build security and protection, walls of padded protection against uh, the ravages of time, growing older or tragedy or losing our things. And the truth is, we cannot protect ourselves from aging or from uh, tragedies or from, from uh, the, the effects of time. Only God can do that for us. And that's where faith comes in to learn to trust God 
instead of building these layers of stuff to imagine that we're protecting ourselves. I'm saying this this morning because I love you so much. I want us to understand you may hold the title to your property, your land, your things. You may hold the deed to your possessions. But God holds title deed to you. And God holds title deed to me. We're His. We're His. The commencement speaker had completed his address uh, at a college. And afterwards, he was mingling with the graduates. And he got in a conversation, engaged in a conversation with a very bright young man who had just graduated. So he sat down with the young man and he said, well, what are you going to do now? The young man said, well, I'm going to go to law school. Well, what then? Well, I'm going to uh, graduate from law school. Well, what then? I'm going to make lots and lots of money. Well, what then? Well, I'm going to uh, retire early. Well, what then? Well, I'm going to travel a lot and see the world. Well, what then? And by this time, the graduate was sort of irritated. And he said, I don't know. I haven't planned any further. And the very wise commencement speaker said, young man, your plans are too small. You've only planned for 60 or 70 years. Your plans need to include God and your plans need to include eternity. And so that's what we say to this farmer this morning, because we can always see the person in Jesus' story as other than us, right? That's what we say to the farmer this morning. Your plans are too small. Bigger barns, that's, too, that's dreaming too small. That's just dreaming for 60 or 70 years. Include God and include eternity. In, in your plans. I want to go back to the Monopoly game. I have a good friend, Drew Hill, many of you know him, a uh, good friend of mine and a really good preacher. He preached a sermon series one time on games people play. He told me about it. We were in Ukraine together a couple of months ago. and He preached this sermon series on games people play, and he preached a sermon on the, the game of Monopoly. He said, you know, uh, we all want to get uh, boardwalk, and we want to own as much as we can so we can really, really make it hard on everybody else playing the game and run the table. Everybody's making a play for boardwalk and all the things around uh, the Monopoly board. But then we have to remember it's just a game. And the money is just play money. And it doesn't really matter. And when it's done, we just take all the pieces, fold them up, and put them in a box. And so we have to remember, we have to keep perspective. We're just here a short time. And money is just paper. It's just stuff. And pretty soon we'll be done with it. And when we're done with it, they'll put everything away and they'll put us in a box. It, it might be oak or pine. It might be a really nice casket of brushed steel. 
but they'll put us all away. And then we hear Jesus asking the question, then whose will these things be? Then who will these things be? Let's pray together.